I had one piece of advice for new graduates, it's to fail. And the reason being, when you opt to that opportunity, when you opt for that growth, what you're doing is you're getting way more data back. You're getting more information about the reality of the world. Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. This is your host, Jim Harshaw Jr. And today I bring you Patrick Sweeney. When I was a Division I All-American athlete, I was hyper-focused and I was able to take consistent action that allowed me to be one of the best in the country at what I did. Well, for years after I was done competing, I just struggled to stay focused on my goals day in and day out. I was easily distracted, so I wasn't able to stay consistent, the kind of consistency that you need to have to achieve goals that are meaningful to you. It was discouraging for me. I felt like I was just slipping kind of into mediocrity. Then, after interviewing some of the highest performers in the world, Olympians, CEOs, billionaires, best-selling authors, I discovered how they do it. I discovered 18 powerful and sometimes weird tactics that they use to stay focused at work, focused on the right things while also living a balanced life. And if you start using probably just three of these today, you're going to get more done in the next eight hours. I promise. This is not tomorrow, not next week. These will work today. I guarantee it. It's like magic, but they're real world solutions to it. People like you and me want the ability to stay focused, avoid distraction and be consistent. I use at least four of them every day and have used all of them at some point. And now I'm able to stay focused while I'm at work and get probably 50 to hundred percent more done each day. I'm more present when I'm home with my wife and four kids. And the result is I have a stronger relationship with my family And I'm still able to achieve incredible goals like being selected to give a TEDx talk at one of the biggest TED events in the world, like launching a podcast and talking to A-list guests and running a half marathon, all of this while having a full-time job that includes frequent travel, working nights and weekends and all that good stuff. So you're going to find solutions on this list that are going to surprise you. Grab your copy of the 18 Tactics to Staying Focused at Work. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash focus. That's jimharshawjr.com slash focus. Patrick is the author of the number five Wall Street Journal bestseller, Fear is Fuel. He spent six years with 36 of the world's top neuroscientists to learn the most cutting-edge science to reprogram the human brain for purpose, passion, and peak performance. He cracked the code on using fear and flow to maximize your potential. I mean, this guy was, uh, he was a former Olympic level athlete. He's a world record holder. He was a world-class rower. Uh, He's a millionaire entrepreneur. Inc. Magazine actually called him one of the most interesting men alive. Fascinating, fascinating conversation. Interestingly, uh, we both share the fact that we love the University of Virginia. We're both Wahoos. Uh, He's a graduate of the Darden School of Business. I'm a graduate of uh, both the undergraduate school uh, of arts and sciences, as well as a master's degree from the education school. A fascinating guy. We share a lot in common, both in our our backstories and our personal lives, but also professionally in our, our beliefs here about fear being fuel. But he actually breaks it down into real stuff. I mean, it's like, yeah, this sounds good as like a title of a book or on stage, but it's like he actually breaks it down and makes it real for you, like how you can actually use this in your life. And if you like this episode, I encourage you to go back and check out episode 297 
with Ja Jung. He is the guy who did the TEDx talk on 100 Days of Rejection Therapy. Absolutely fascinating conversation with Ja back in episode 297. These two episodes very much tie together. So when you're done listening to this one, go back and listen to episode 297 because there's some really great tactical stuff there as well and some funny, interesting stories of 100 Days of Rejection Therapy. All right, without further ado, let's get to my interview with Patrick Sweeney. Let's start with your story. I mean, let's start with from you. You talked about, you know, when you were a kid, you grew up terrified of everything. You didn't have confidence to where you're at now. Can you take us through that journey? You know, Jim, I'm son of a first generation Irish immigrant. So uh, grew up in the pretty rough and tumble collar area of Boston. No one in my family went to college. You know, my dad was working three or four jobs. We'd have, you know, shit, it took me until I was in my 20s to be able to have pancakes because we were, you know, not making enough money to have much for dinner. So my mom would make Bisquick pancakes two or three nights a week, right? Because it's just water and, and Bisquick. And so we had, you know, pretty meager upbringing. And then like a lot of sort of blue collar, first generation immigrants, it was a lot of, you know, traditional, very tough roles. You couldn't show any fear. You know, if you're going to cry, we'll give you a reason to cry. And the, the belt had come out and, you know, you get whipped with a belt. And so it's typical. And, you know, and looking back in retrospect, it's pretty sad. But I think because of a lot of the upbringing and that sort of thing, I just didn't have any self-esteem. And I naturally was looking for self-confidence and self-esteem. And then when I was seven years old, uh, we were sitting there and my brother and I were playing in the living room on the shag carpet, playing with our G.I. Joe dolls, well, our action figures. And, and so my uh, dad flipped on the TV and there's this horrific plane crash at Logan Airport. And I'm sitting there looking at it and I just had this tremendous fear response. I, I was terrified, just fixated on the screen black and white, you know, small RCA screen. And these monochromatic flames are licking up the back of a Delta DC-9 and the newscasters screaming that everyone on board died. And it was a horrible crash at Logan. And so that planted the seed in me, this terror of flying my whole life. And it also planted just a seed of fear. Like every time I felt that same change in my body, I did everything I could to avoid it. And, and, and I, I really started being afraid of fear and afraid of those feelings. And because of that, I had a lot of shame. Like I, I, I felt, you know, really ashamed and, and really guilty for being scared all the time because I thought I shouldn't be scared, right? This, I'm not a man and I shouldn't be feeling like this. So then consequently, I tried to do everything I could to cover it up. And, you know, first it started with sports and you've seen this, a lot of your listeners have seen this. You go to sports to try and learn self-esteem and, and learn confidence. And sometimes it works. And for me, my sport ended up being rowing and finished second in the single skull in the Olympic trials, raced the world cup for three years and, but missed out on so many opportunities because of fear. And, and in fact, very few Americans have raced the World Cup in the single skull. And when my coach called me to tell me, it should have been one of the happiest days of my life, right? Because this is amazing. I'm going, you know, racing the World Cup with the biggest names in the sport. And instead, I had a panic attack because it meant I had to get on a plane and fly to Europe, right? And so that just took away any joy, any pride, anything I felt with it was just the whole notion of having to get on a plane and I'd have six or seven beers, you know, sitting there waiting to get dragged onto the plane. So I thought, you know, I, I thought sports could, could get me some self-esteem and, you know, and it, and it did on the race course, but I still had these fears and this shame. 
And fast forward to after the Olympics, I went to grad school at UVA, which you're lucky enough to be down there now. Yeah, wahoo wah. <laughs> wahoo wah. If I made a lot of money, that'll get me self-esteem. That'll get me confidence. So I said, I'm going to do 40 by 40 and make myself a net worth of $40 million by the time I'm 40 years old. And that was my mantra was 40 by 40 and, you know, screw my friendships or relationships. I'm just doing everything I can to make money. That led to this toxic lifestyle because I constantly had these fears. And I'll tell you, you know, we can talk about my failures, which there are many of, because I know you and I think the same about how valuable those are. And as I was sitting there building these companies, going through all this stuff, I felt this tremendous discomfort in my body all the time. And I didn't know it at the time, but it was the stress hormone cortisol. And it was constantly coursing through my body. And rather than deal with it or learn to use it, I started to numb it out. So I'd have six or seven beers every night. I'd go to venture capital events or charity events or networking events. And I'd start drinking around six o'clock in the office and then drink until midnight or one o'clock. And then I'd go home for three or four hours of teeth grinding sleep and feel guilty about drinking that much and you know that whole Irish Catholic thing. <laughs> and then uh, have to get up the next morning at five o'clock to go to the gym and sweat it out. And so that was my lifestyle and it was a tremendously toxic lifestyle. And I kept you know, building up this veneer to try and cover up all the shame and all this fear I was feeling. Not surprisingly, it led to really my first death as I like to think of it. I woke up one morning and this could happen to any one of your listeners. And I went to the gym, was going to do lats. So uh, lats and arms, I jumped on the lat pull-down machine. And all of a sudden, my arm just started screaming in pain. I thought, wow, that's really strange. I must have pulled something. So it's all right. I'll do cardio, hopped on the cardio machine. Next day, it was even worse. And I probably should have gone to the doctor at that point, but I was just too afraid to. So by the third day, my arm was red and swollen and angry like a Christmas stocking. And I knew I had to do something. So went to the doctors in Reston, Virginia, and they did a bunch of tests. And he said, you know, it looks like a staph infection. We'll give you some antibiotics and a nurse will call you back this afternoon with the results. Well, it wasn't the nurse that called back. It was the doctor. And that single phone call changed my life. He said, we don't know what you have, but you have no white blood cells and you've got no immune system we're going to send you up to Johns Hopkins. I went up to Hopkins within, you know, 24 hours, the doc comes in and he, he sits down and he says, we don't know what kind of a leukemia this is, what kind of a blood cancer it is, but uh, it's not responding to anything. And the staph infection is continuing to eat its way up your body. And, you know, you probably should put your affairs in order and, and say your goodbyes. And, you know, my daughter was a year old and my wife was six months pregnant and she went into shock, you know, at the time. And all I could think of was, holy shit, that's it. That's, you know, I had so many great opportunities that I just completely wasted because of fear. And now it's over. You know, here we are. That was the turning point, obviously, for me. And, and that's when everything changed. Yeah. And so, so what do you do at that point? I mean, you go through your life, you're an elite athlete, you've got a couple of great degrees from great schools and, you know, success is, is something you've built in your life and, and you're on this trajectory of success, but you're dealing with this fear. And then all of a sudden, boom, you have like the biggest fear anybody could face. And this is the fear of death. Like what happens next? 
So, you know, it, it was at that point, Jim, when, you know, I'm facing the ultimate fear and I'm realizing this is what my fears are all about. I think it, it's sort of when the whole idea of the stoic notion that, you know, we're all going to die. So you do it as best you can, you know? And I thought, I haven't done as best as I can. And I've really been cheated. I've been robbed myself of all these great opportunities. And I said, not only that, I started thinking about my daughter, who was a year old. And I thought, man, is the memory she's going to have of her dad, the guy who's too afraid to get on a plane and take her to Disney or bring her back to Ireland to meet her relatives or show her Paris or, or whatever. And I thought, man, she deserves so much better than that. If I get out of here, I'm going to overcome this fear of flying. And I'm going to be the daddy she deserves to have. And my unborn now son deserves to have. So I'm in Hopkins and I realized that all that visualization, all that hypnotizing, all that mental training that I learned at the Olympic Training Center, I could use on myself. And so that's what I, I said. I got to do something. So I, every waking moment, I imagined I had these warrior cells just pouring out of my sternum, attacking those rogue white blood cells. And so the visualization, these great docs, and then by the grace of God, I ended up getting out of Hopkins. And when I got my immune system back and I could go out in public, the first thing I wanted to do was take flying lessons. So I went to Leesburg Airport in Virginia. So can, can I pause you at that point? Sure. Because I want to ask about like the visualization of healing in your body. And you know, visualization is such a powerful technique. I've used it in my life in the past. I use it in my life now. It's something I don't do enough, but I, I do it. I do it on a regular basis, at least once a week, but you know, sometimes multiple times a week. But I, I know that this is such a powerful technique that we can use. Mm. Do you feel like it helped you heal? Oh, it, it completely helped me heal. I, I mean, I think that was the cornerstone to getting better. And Conversely, Jim, and most people don't even realize this, that was also the key to me getting sick in the first place. So what I was visualizing subconsciously, and I later found this out with all the neuroscience research during my lead up into getting sick, I was constantly seeing all these horrible things that could possibly go wrong. And most of them I couldn't control, but I was trying to control. Right? I was trying to make sure my board of directors saw me as a world-class CEO instead of being the guy who was honest and authentic and said, you know, this is where I need your help. This is why I've got you guys, and this is where I'm having a big struggle. And so it was always me imagining the worst. So I was literally visualizing without consciously doing it. I was literally visualizing these things that, that almost killed me. So conversely, when I started, and this is my book, Fear is Fuel, which is just came out in the audio version, has a, a whole chapter devoted to this. It's chapter six in the book. And it talks about, the great part about the audio book is it talks about when I learned this at the Olympic Training Center with a psychologist named Shane Murphy. And Shane was the Olympic Training Center sports psychologist for 15 years. We interview him at the end of the chapter. So there's a great section at the end of the audio book of that chapter six that talks about all this, but the visualization is so powerful and most people don't do it correctly. And I would say 95% of the people I've talked to from NHL all-star hockey players to major league baseball players to Navy SEALs, most of them somehow or another have gotten the wrong version of what I think is sort of peak performance, high flow visualization. And when you get it right, it's incredibly powerful. Can you give us a quick primer on that? 
Yeah. So I'll give you, you know, the nickel version. The thing that Shane did and was so fantastic about, you know, the first thing is every athlete, you've got your self-talk is the most important thing any athlete can do. It's the voice that you have inside your head and understanding and controlling that, right? So most of your listeners who are athletes know that self-talk is the number one thing that influences our performance. So now the getting the self-talk to the place where you can handle anything is critical. So most people sit there, they get in a nice relaxed state, they get, you know, in this state of suggestiveness where they're open to new ideas, and then they picture the race going perfectly, right? You're, you know, you jump out to an early lead, the boat's swinging along beautifully, it's well balanced, you're starting to pull away, and you cross the finish line, and, you know, the crowd's going crazy, you hear the noise, you smell the smells, and that's it, right? And, and so... The first week or so with Shane, that's what we were doing. We were, you know, it was great. And I'm sitting there and we're in this giant egg-shaped chair. It's about the size of a, a freaking Volkswagen bug. And it's got 20 speakers in it. And you've got the noise of the sounds of the race and everything else. It was fantastic. So we get on like day, I don't know, 10 or something. And after the first practice of the day, I go up to see Shane and it's my slot. And, you know, I'm having this great race in Rome or wherever the World Cup location he picked for the day was. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm in first place and I hit a buoy and the boat bobbles and I nearly flip over. And all of a sudden I'm in last place. And I'm like, Shane, what the fuck? I was just winning the race. Where, where is this going? <laughs> so, so he said, OK, now what are you going to do? And so that's really the key to it. When I figured out how I could do visualization and what, what it was to get in that suggestive state, that's when he started throwing all these curveballs at me. And the neuroscience is perfect for this because our brain's a prediction engine. And we're constantly trying to figure out the outcome of each event. What makes us scared when things are unexpected or when there's an element of surprise that we didn't predict. And that's what really creates this fear. And that's what creates really poor performance. So what most people should do is what the Stoics would call a premeditation of evil. So imagine all the horrible things that go wrong and then how you'd respond to them. And a great case in point was that summer, I was in Lucerne, Switzerland, and it was the semifinals. I was well in hand, you know, we, it was next three to qualify. And I was in second place, almost in first place, moving well. And one of the official launches came down for the next race, waked the hell out of me, right? Like threw this giant wave over my bow, got in the boat and everything else. And any other time I probably would have freaked out, but instead I started laughing, right? Because I'm like, man, this is Shane's scenario right, right here. And I said, this is exactly what I practiced for. And it was, you know, it was so magical at that moment to think, okay, this is probably the worst thing that could have, you know, short of sinking the boat somehow, this is the worst thing that could have happened in the middle of the semifinals. And here I am laughing about it, getting my balance back together, making a move, breathing, you know, all the things I should have done to get back in and, and move on to the next, you know, to the next level. So it really works well if you do that and imagine that you've got to beat, you know, the best guy to advance. You've got to, you've got to set a new world record. You've got to overcome this disease nobody's ever heard of. You know, if you can imagine all of those things, then you're ready for them and you take away that element of surprise. You know, I, I think back to my wrestling days and that's exactly what I did. I remember I would visualize three scenarios. Number one, the match going perfectly and everything going well. The second scenario was the match like starting off terribly. Like I get thrown to my back. I'm down three or four or five, nothing. 
and I've got to fight back. And then the third scenario was it's just a close match. You know, it's back and forth the whole way and it goes in, you know, winning and then I get taken down. It sends it into overtime and like having to like deal with real adversity. So it absolutely makes sense to me. I love that you use visualization to not just compete at the highest level, but also to heal your body. So fascinating stuff. Uh, and I'm sure we can learn more about that in the book. So you get to this point in your life where you say, I'm not going to let this fear hold me back anymore. I'm going to be the best father I can be. You commit to like, I'm going to get over this fear of flying. Then what? Go to Leesburg Airport. And prior to this, so I was sort of boy in a bubble for a while while my immune system built up. Couldn't leave my house, couldn't have guests over and that sort of thing. And so I read probably a hundred accident reports on the FAA website, Because right? I'm saying, you know, I want to find out everything I can about flying and about what causes accidents and, you know, what kind of planes crash. So then I decide if I'm kicking and screaming and crying, I'm going to go to get my private pilot's license. It's funny because when I was at UVA, we had a chance to join and go get our, our license at a um, discounted rate or something like that. And one of the guys in my class was going, he said, talking about what a great time. And I could just remember, because I, I lived not far from the airport, and I said these little tiny planes taking off and land. And I could just remember, I'm like, man, there is no way I'd get my ass in one of those things. Like, that's terrifying. And so, you know, a few years later, here I am. And I remember that first lesson. I probably peed four times on the way out to the plane, right? Because I was so terrified. And everything, because I had this fear response, which means we're better poised to fight, we're better poised to flee, we're, we're much smarter, and we have better cognitive abilities, right? You get more blood to your eyes and your ears. So everything was like in this super technicolor saturation as I'm walking out to the plane. I can remember the noises, the smells, all the all the sights. And we got out, the, the first lesson was just pure terror. I was petrified the whole time. Second lesson wasn't much better because we flew out over the Blue Ridge Mountains and hit a little turbulence. And I think that's actually when I pooped myself. I mean, just a, a little <laughs> tiny bit, not a lot. <laughs> and, yeah. But the amazing Part thing- of it. Yeah, exactly. The amazing thing was after maybe five or six lessons, I started to really love flying. And by the time, you know, I was 15 lessons into it, I was completely in love with flying. It was the most gratifying thing I'd ever done. I felt more pride of being able to fly a plane than anything I'd ever done in my life. And so I got my private license. I got my instrument license. I got my commercial license. I got a seaplane rating. And now, like the kid who is terrified to even look at a commercial plane, I fly a, a stunt plane in aerobatics competitions. That's how much my life has changed. And, and that was actually the catalyst for writing the book. I wondered how I could go from Diary of a Wimpy Kid to Captain Courageous, right? In a, in a matter of six months or 12 months or something like that. So it was, and when I found out how that happened, I wanted to share it with everyone. So my goal is to help millions of people find their courage center. We actually have a courage center in our brain that most people don't know how to access but we can learn. And that's the amazing thing. And that's the whole reason I wrote the book. Okay. So fear is fuel. That's the name of the book. I mean, that sounds great for a book title. That sounds great for a talk. It sounds great. Maybe we'll listen to this motivational speaker and he'll take, tell us like how fear is fuel. Like, but, but Patrick, what about me? Like the listener saying that, you know, how do I like use that? There may be some fear. Uh, maybe it's a fear of starting that business or speaking on stage or, 
asking that girl on a date or, or whatever it might be. Like, how is this? How do I access this? How do I access this courage center? How do I use this fear as fuel? How do I take this from like world-class athlete, Patrick, who's now, you know, who's fear of flying and now he's a stunt pilot, like to my life, to the listener's life. And that's the thing, Jim, absolutely anyone can do this. And, you know, I, like I said, Navy SEALs or pro baseball players or whatever, but I just got a really nice message and a call from a 74-year-old lady who had her second COVID shot but she's still afraid to go out, right? So she has this after effect fear from COVID and even though she's vaccinated. So in, you know, two or three just tools in her hands and now she's kind of out enjoying life and everything's changed. So anybody can use these tools. If you know just a little bit about the neuroscience of how the brain works, you can leverage that to your benefit. So the key thing to understand is the oldest part of our brain is our fear center and it's called the amygdala and the amygdala is running literally a two million year old piece of software right it's something that gives us the signal that says fight flight or freeze that's all we want to do so as soon as it detects something it can't predict something unusual something out of the ordinary then the amygdala sets off and that's what changes our body so that produces this fear cocktail when we feel that we get much smarter we get much stronger we get you know that's why the 120 pound woman can lift up a car to save her kid's life who's trapped underneath it we get superpowers so if you can learn how to use that fear as fuel instead of running from it what that fear center used to be is our early warning system for danger what we can reprogram the fear center to be is our early warning system for opportunity. And the way that you do that is accessing that courage center, which is called the SGACC, the subgenial anterior cingulate cortex. And that courage center can be accessed a number of different ways. Number one, the easiest way to do it is to set up a moment where you have to use it. Because of something called neuroplasticity, the neurons that we fire together at any age will wire together. So the more you start to set up these opportunities where you have to do something courageous, the more you're easily able to connect to that courage center. So setting up moments during the day when you scare yourself, when you get out of your comfort zone, when you do something, and it doesn't have to be jumping out of a plane. It can be, you know, giving someone a compliment who you wouldn't give a compliment to, making a toast at lunch, telling a joke on a Zoom call, something that you'd never have the courage to do. You start your day saying, I know I'm going to do something today to scare myself. Here's what it's going to be. And you do that, the thing that you might fail at, right? This is where failure and you know everything that you advise, Jim, comes right into play because a lot of people don't do things because they're afraid of the failure. So if you do something that you think you might fail at, I'm going to tell everyone at the gym, I'm going to bench press 225 pounds and I want everyone to sit and watch me do it, right? You're like, oh my God. So, so all of these, you know, all of these things, the key thing is learning to scare yourself because then you learn the changes that happen in your body. And when you understand those changes, those can start to be something that you welcome and you look forward to when you feel the butterflies in your stomach, when you feel your jaw getting tight, your breathing quickening or your palms getting sweaty. It's those reactions when all of a sudden you can say, okay, I've got a choice now. I can decide something based on fear or I can decide based on opportunity. If I default to fear, it's going to lead to regret, to shame, to failure. If I default to opportunity, 
That's where growth lies. And it's going to feel uncomfortable. And I know that, but that's where I want to go. I want to go into that discomfort. And once you start to do that, and this happened with me and flying, courage has this whole halo effect on your entire life. My relationships got so much better. My business got more successful. You know, my family situation really improved. Everything became super easy once I started accessing that Courage Center. And your listeners can see it happening too. Quick interruption. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to get the notes, quotes, and links in the action plan from this episode. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. That's jimharshawjr.com slash action to get your free copy of the action plan. Now back to the show. You mentioned a key word I think there that's going to be really helpful to focus on for a second, default. Like if you default to fear, there will be regret. And I think that's the case with most people is like we have a default. I don't even know if most people recognize the fear. It's like this unconscious mind thought where you go, I could do that. Oh, wait, no, I can't. I'm not going to do that. That's scary. I'm just going to do the simple thing, the easy thing. I'm going to lower my goals, settle for less. It's just like an unconscious way of operating. Is the first step like becoming aware? That is 100%, Jim. And here's what's messed up. And here's why I like to bring everything back to the neuroscience. So when you're born, you come out of the womb with a fully developed amygdala. So your fear center, the thing that handles the fight, flight, or freeze, is fully developed at birth. And it's to help us survive, right, in the wild, where kids are angry and they're very good at fighting or fleeing. So that's fully developed. Nothing else in terms of rational thought is developed at that time. And in fact, your courage center doesn't fully develop until you're in your early 20s. So your default is to defense. We spend the first 15, up until about puberty, we spend that first 12, 15 years of our life defaulting to defense, switching on that fight, flight, or freeze. So that becomes super powerful in our subconscious. So it's the easy thing to do is to default to defense when really all the possibility lies in the future and doing something different and getting out of your comfort zone. And that's where growth and success and happiness are. So if you start to become aware of that default and you start to notice yourself, and in fact, the, the biggest thing, if your listeners take anything away from me or my book or all the research I've done for the past seven years, the biggest, most impactful thing in your life is if you can replace judgment with curiosity. So for the listener who's going, okay, I don't want to default to fear anymore, but if I default to the other side, to courage, isn't that going to lead to more failure? Isn't that going to lead to trying things that maybe I'm not ready for? And you know, I'll, I'll just say this, and maybe this is a, a softball, but definitely push back on this if you don't agree. That path of courage is going to lead to failure, which leads to learning, which leads to experience, which leads to growth, which leads to the next level of you. Amen. And so that's when, we, as soon as you said the leading to failure, what I think, you know, number one, and I 100% agree, I said that at the commencement speech at University of New Hampshire at the business school. I said, if I had one piece of advice for new graduates, it's to fail. And the reason being, when you opt to that opportunity, when you opt for that growth, what you're doing is you're getting way more data back you're getting more information about the reality of the world. If you default to your defense, you're getting the same response back that you've always gotten. 
So the reason I say if you can do anything that's going to change your life dramatically is to replace judgment with curiosity. If you walk into Bodo's, so for those of you, your listeners who know Charlottesville, it's the best bagel shop in the world. <laughs> and you walk in there and some guy comes over and he's got you know a face full of piercings and tattoos everywhere. And you think, man, that freak's going to hand me some coffee and uh, this is a nightmare. That's your judgment, right? It's a judgment because maybe you were brought up Irish Catholic in a blue collar neighborhood and you've never had a friend who was a victim of a drive-by piercing. <laughs> so you have this mindset that you want to make a judgment about this guy. Now, if you stop yourself in mid-judgment and you say, what can I find that's, that's really interesting about this guy? What can I find that's admirable? And you think, well, number one, he's got a great threshold of pain because I could never put one of those little things in my upper eyelid. Number two, he doesn't care what anyone thinks about him. So he's got great self-confidence. So now you're looking at this and you're actually engaging the other half, the other hemisphere of your brain. Because when you make judgments, you only use half your brain. It's something called valence. You wrote something good to the good side, something bad to the bad side. When you replace that judgment with curiosity, you're doing something that's a little bit trippy to think about, but you're changing your future past. Because 80% of our decisions are made subconsciously based on our past. So based on everything that happened in our past and in our life and, and in our world growing up, which we have very little control over, by the way. But now if you can stop and consciously put some new information into your database in the future, you're going to make a different judgment. You're going to have a, a more open mind. You're going to be more curious. You're going to be more creative. And in fact, you'll easier be able to get into the state of flow, which is where, you know, ultimately we want to be for peak performance. You mentioned control. Like we don't have control over so much of it. And 80% of our decisions are made subconsciously. What can we do? So we listen to this podcast episode. We go, man, this is really great. What a great concept. We read your book, listen to your book, follow you on social media, get the information. Like, what can we do? Like, what can we do in the next 24 to 48 hours to really start embracing fear as fuel? I mean, is there tactically, is there something that you can recommend that the listener can do? You bet. And some of the stuff your listeners are probably doing already, but number one is to start a breathing practice. And this doesn't have to be a half hour. It doesn't have to be 45 minutes. You can wake up in the morning. So I've got a five-step morning routine I do. First thing I do, I wake up, thank God I'm above the dirt or thank Buddha or thank the universe. It doesn't matter. Just wake up with some gratitude. Have a sense of gratitude and be grateful that you've got another day on this planet. And that's number one. Number two, take three or four minutes. Doesn't have to be any longer than that. Do a series of what I call four by fours. Breathe in for a count of four, hold it for a count of four, breathe out for a count of four, hold it out for a count of four. That four by four, just doing it for three or four minutes every day will literally change the cellular structure of your brain in the first week. And then what happens when we get in that position where now we're going to go through the day, we're going to look for opportunities to be uncomfortable. When you get in that position and you feel those changes in your body and you feel that fear response, you do a four by four it does something that neuroscience calls bottoms-up information. So we've got top-down, which is everything we take in with our eyes and our ears and our senses that we, we put into our brain to try and make sense and try and make predictions on. But we also have bottoms-up. And if you're breathing the way you do every morning when you wake up, your brain says, whoa, 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 hold on a minute. We must not be under threat. We must not be in a dangerous condition because we're breathing nice and steady and normally. 
So that bottoms up information stops the amygdala, their fear center from hijacking our thoughts, gives us the ability to make better long-term decisions. So first and foremost, start that breathing process because then when you get in a stressful situation, you do a couple four by fours. Now you've got this superhuman performance and your brain's cleared out to start to make some good rational decisions. So the breathing practice is number one, replacing judgment with curiosity. Try and count the number of times in a day you make judgments and you see yourself and just that awareness, like you said, Jim, just becoming aware of, yeah, I judged the way that that guy, you know, turned without using his turn signal. Yeah, I judged the way that that girl was looking at me when I pulled that shaving cream off the shelf. Yeah, I judged the, you know, whatever it is, all these things that happen during the day, you're going to judge yourself on. If you start to catch yourself doing that and then think, how can I be curious about that? How can the opposite of what I'm saying be true? So I get more information. And then lastly, I think, you know, this is the, the cornerstone of your philosophy, Jim, is take action. One of the biggest components of my success, whether it's in business, whether it's in creating a bestseller, whether it's been in helping other people, is doing something very quickly, not waiting and not hesitating. Because once you do something, once you take action, you get data back. And the more data you get back, the richer your decisions become. So the more action you take, the more data you're going to get back. So those are the three things I'd suggest everyone can walk away with. And as an added bonus, I'd tell everyone to take a cold shower for three minutes a day. Excellent. You got your marching orders. That's for my listeners. You, you know what to do. These are tactical things. You don't have to wait. You don't have to have the degree or the network or the money or anything. You can start with this stuff right away. Patrick, incredible. Where can the listeners find you, follow you, buy your book, get your new version of your audio book that just recently came out? Tell us how they can get a hold of you. You bet, Jim. So pjsweeney.com, S-W-E-E-N-E-Y is my website. And actually, uh, something really fun on the PJ Sweeney website, there's a fear test. Takes about five minutes to do, and I did it in collaboration with 10 great psychologists. And it'll tell you in seven areas where you've got the most courage, where you need work, and that sort of thing. And it's completely free. So the fear test on pjsweeney.com. Instagram, the fear guru on uh, Twitter, PJ Sweeney. Facebook, The Fear Guru, Patrick Sweeney, LinkedIn, Patrick Sweeney. And you know, the audiobook is exclusive on Amazon and Audible and iTunes. And it's it's really a great version. And because last year, you know, we had a little extra time on our hands with no travel and no speaking gigs, we doubled down on the book. So we've got a former Boston Red Sox who reads the book with me, and we've got 10 great celebrity guests. So one person comes in at the end of each chapter, and it's really awesome. I've had some incredible feedback because having those guests and those celebrities, everyone from, you know, Grammy-winning actors to reclusive billionaires are on the end there. and It makes for a really interesting listen to augment the book. So that's Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. Excellent. For the listeners, take action on this. Do this. Get more Patrick in your life. All those links that he just mentioned, they're going to be in the action plan. So go to jimharshowjr.com slash action. You get all those links. You can find them on social media. You can buy his book, et cetera. Because as Patrick is known to say, All the success you want is on the other side of fear. So you've got to start here. You've got to take action. Patrick, thank you for making time to come on the show. Jim, it's been great being here. I thank everyone for taking the time out of their day to listen. And that's absolutely right. All your dreams, I guarantee it, are on the other side of fear. Thanks for listening. If you want to apply these principles into your life, 
Let's talk. You can see the limited spaces that are open on my calendar at jimharshawjr.com slash apply, where you can sign up for a free one-time coaching call directly with me. And don't forget to grab your action plan. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. And lastly, iTunes tends to suggest podcasts with more ratings and reviews more often. You would totally make my day if you give me a rating and review. Those go a long way in helping me grow the podcast audience. Just open up your podcast app if you have an iPhone, do a search for success through failure, select it, and then scroll the whole way to the bottom where you can leave the podcast a rating and a review. Now, I hope this isn't just another podcast episode for you. I hope you take action on what you learned here today. Good luck and thanks for listening.